I'm excited to join here today with Samantha Nutt, uh, who is a friend and uh, also somebody that I really aspire uh, to for, for many of the things she's accomplished in life, from being a medical doctor to working with uh, children in war zones and things that a lot of people dream about or they want to do at one point in their lives. And Samantha does it day in, day out. And uh, something that I will touch on uh, at one point during later in the podcast is even dealing with ambushes that have happened periodically. Which uh, it's 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 funny to say it in retrospect, but not funny when it actually happens uh, live. So it's it's one of the things that we're going to talk about. But Samantha, welcome and thank you for joining me here today. Well, thanks, thank you, Gary, for having me. And I'm I'm going to start with a little bit about uh, for anyone. Uh, there are a lot of people out there that know you or know of you, but can you tell me a little bit about who Samantha Nat is? A little bit about your upbringing and. Uh, and and uh, the first early stages of the career, and then we'll talk a bit about, about career evolution later on. Sure. Well, I'm a, I'm I'm a Toronto girl, born and bred. I grew up at Finch and Victoria Park, right on the margins of between North York and Scarborough. Um, I did spend a good chunk of my childhood in different parts of the world here and there, but mostly have always called Toronto home. And I went to medical school here in Canada at McMaster University and then did my residency in public health and family medicine at the University of Toronto. And so in addition to my work at Warchild Canada and Warchild USA, I'm also on staff at Women's College Hospital in Toronto and an assistant professor of medicine at the University of Toronto. And uh, my husband, Eric, um, is wonderful. Eric Hoskins, who you also know, Gary, um, former minister of health here in Ontario. And then our, our son, Reese, who is 18 and has just headed off for his first year of university. And uh, Samantha, I know that that's uh, a whole topic on its own, dealing with kids going uh, going off to university. So I may ask you a little bit about that uh, a bit further. <laughs> it does feel when they when they head off like you've spiked the ball at the finish line. I tell you that much. <laughs> and uh, my eldest son is uh, in grade twelve currently, so I, I'm I've learned for a little bit from some of what you told me last year uh, around what to be cautious with and now uh, going through those uh, through those motions ourselves so yeah. <laughs> I'll be picking your brain on a few more things no problem yeah it's a it's a it's an exciting but also challenging and nerve-wracking time for the kids right now uh, Samantha growing up who would you say played the most critical role in your life um I mean look I think that obviously your parents, contribute to making you the person that you are um, and you can become that person for, with the, as a result of the good things that they do and sometimes as a result of the things that they do that you know they probably should have done differently I am generation X and we were a largely neglected generation I think um, but that also in a way teaches you resilience and determination and a certain level of, of fearlessness that I think is um, and self-reliance that I think ultimately is quite healthy. Um, but certainly growing up in the, as a child of the seventies and the eighties, it was not, uh, the, the level of involvement of, of parents and parenting was not on the, uh, on the same level as it is right now. So definitely, um, my folks for sure. But I would say even, you know, as much as that, um, I was very lucky that throughout my high school years in particular, I had terrific teachers and they really believed in me and invested in me. And I wasn't necessarily someone who would 
put myself out there or take um, big chances or even put myself in a position where I was center stage on abs- on anything at all. And so as a result of their their nurturing, their encouragement, their the opportunities that they provided uh, to me, I learned to find my voice, certainly. And that's something I have been tremendously grateful for ever since. To, to say that um, if it weren't, I mean, it wouldn't be an, I wouldn't be understating the case to say that if it weren't for them, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. I wouldn't be, have the confidence to speak publicly on these issues. And, um, you know, they, their, their impact was life-changing. And I think that's true for teachers everywhere. Teachers are, um, I think an underappreciated resource, but they change lives every single day. And and they truly have the potential for it, Samantha. It's a, it's a, an excellent uh, testimonial to the impact of teachers, and that we should really appreciate and invest in our educational system. Mm. Uh, but without deviating, <laughs> uh, we we seldom uh, become what we wanted to be as children. Growing up, what did you want to be? Uh, when when you grew up aquaman <laughs> just wanted to ride a seahorse no i mean look um well it's funny people ask me that and and I, at one point i was doing uh figure skating and i had visions of of being an olympic figure skater except when i would spin i would get dizzy and fall over or throw up i have terrible motion sickness <laughs> And so my parents didn't quite have the heart to tell me that, you know, most Olympic gold medalists don't spin and puke. Um, But I think that that was the great thing about how I was raised, which was that there weren't, I was the first person on both sides of the family. My sister was the second, the two of us are the only two who went on to university. And so the expectations were not of the level that that they are today you know it was okay great you're graduating from high school great you got a spot at university fantastic it there wasn't this sense that everything was preordained and you had to know that you wanted to be a, a a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant from an early age in fact when i finished high school i went on a scholarship to study drama and 19th century romantic english literature at a school in North Yorkshire called Giggleswick. I just uh, gave their convocation address a few months ago. It was great to be back. It was a 500 year old school. And, um, you know, and so, and then I, I came back to Canada and I ended up going to medical school. So I think that we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to fall in line and to follow a certain trajectory. And I try to recommend to young people all the time, just be open to the opportunities as they present themselves. Be curious, be interested, follow the things that you're passionate about. And then if you do that, the the career evolves from that. I don't know if that's been your experience, but I'm still never certain what I want to be or or how I define myself. I'm a a doctor, I'm an NGO leader, I'm a public speaker, I'm 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 an author. Um, We don't have to be one thing. We can be many things at, at the same time. I think that's a very important piece of advice, Samantha, is that, uh, and that's part of the reason why we seldom become uh, necessarily what we thought of as as, as youngsters, because sometimes we, there's only so much we know, and those dreams are only based on certain facts, and then as we grow up, we're like, oh, well, this may be more fun, and uh, yeah, that's valuable. Well, that's it, and we allow people to 
determine other people to determine what we're capable of and and what we're capable of changes over time you know i very nearly failed physics when i was in high school in fact the physics teacher um this was before teachers actually had to be uh thoughtful and care about your self-esteem. But the physics teacher on my report card in grade 11 put, Samantha is totally incapable of understanding physics. <laughs> like, there, there, there was no question with it. Totally incapable of understanding physics. And then, you know, you need physics to get into medical school. And I took physics in second year university, and I think I got about 94%. Um, and so, you know, sometimes it's not you, sometimes it's them and failure is never fatal. And the stuff that interests you at 12 and 13 and 18 is not necessarily the stuff that interests you at 28 and 38 and 48. And so, um, again, it just comes back to being open to different opportunities and realizing that you don't have to be on a singular path. I find the people who are on those singular paths, at least when it comes to medicine, who've have just been all in since they were 13 and earning high grades and high achievers and just have never lived life. They actually make kind of crappy doctors um, because they haven't lived and, and living is really, that's why we're here. So you may as well enjoy the ride. Yeah. And we become a byproduct of the total of our experiences. So the more diverse our experiences are, the more well-rounded we are. And often our educational system doesn't always promote well-roundedness if it's just about grades or just about a certain MCAT scores in the case of medicine. So exactly. I can completely relate. <laughs> well, I think we were a bit lucky in the sense that it was still very, very competitive and it was very tough and grades weren't as inflated as they are now. If you got an 80 in something that was considered exceptional. Um, but we, we were lucky in the sense that, you know, failure didn't feel as fatal and you could pretty much do atrociously until your very last year of high school here and then as long as you had a pulse you could find somewhere to get in right um now it all feels all these all these decisions and near misses feel a bit bigger and i think that's unfortunate because i think young people uh teenagers especially carry a tremendous amount of stress as a result of that and and it's too bad because failure is such a critical part of life and learning and resilience and stress management. And so if you don't learn those skills early on, if everything feels really big every time, um, then it's it's hard to know how to compartmentalize that. Well, Samantha, I can definitely relate to to being the to the path being winding and, and inconsistent. <laughs> I think, you know, my undergrad was in biochemistry only to do the low end MBA program because I thought I wanted to go into medicine and now being in translation, so yeah. Yeah. I'm the perfect proof of, of how uh, you can you can pivot and uh, still really enjoy what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but I, I, I will go to something a bit more, you know, everyone sees uh, Samantha, the, the uh, public speaker and the, to your point, NGO leader, doctor, et cetera. What are your hobbies? What do you like to do for fun? Mm, I love uh, great dinners and wine with friends. Um, I like to read, obviously. It's a big passion of mine. I um, I also I knit, especially on planes, because it stops me from getting all exercised about 17-hour delays here, there, and everywhere. Um, but mostly, I really we really enjoy as a family going up to our, our it's very small, 900 square foot cabin in the Algonquin Highlands on a no motor lake 
and I, we try to get up there most of the summer um, to the extent that we can. And it's just, it's just beautiful. I, I used to be a camper. Uh, I went to camp as a teenager. I led canoe trips uh, and did all those kinds of things. So I just really love being connected to the, the Canadian shield and the rocks and the river, the rivers and the lakes and the loons. And, uh, you know, it's just, to me, that's where I feel most alive and most at peace. And certainly some of that detachment with nature can only be helpful after some of uh, what you experience in your day to day. Yeah, as long as no one's setting off fireworks, which tends to happen in cottage country, I, I I don't do well in fireworks. And so when I go up to the, when I go up north and it's beautiful and peaceful, and I've just come out of a war zone, and then some idiot on the end of the lake is doing a massive fireworks display, um, that's probably my major pet peeve. But anyway, people people all have fun through different ways, I suppose. It's just when I'm hiding under the bed, I don't appreciate it. <laughs> I think, uh, Samantha, you never wish for people to experience what war zones are like, but certainly I think uh, hopefully they can learn secondhand from people such as yourself uh, to say, look, trust me, it's not worth it. I know it may seem like fun. <laughs> it's it's not worth the, the outcome. So Yeah, I think anyone, anyone really who has lived with war and seen it and experienced it firsthand um understands that it is something that is to be avoided at all costs and that the price is it's too heavy a price to pay frankly so samantha that that sets me up nicely for the next question i had for you which is a little to understand a little bit of your career we got a little bit to university uh, and, and your past university but how did your career pivot from there and um how did you go from being a medical doctor to to an ngo leader with uh such a prominent organization like Warshout Canada. And if I'm not mistaken, you and Eric started Warshout Canada. So this was not just how I became a leader. It was like fundamentally started grassroots. So tell us a little bit about what that process looked like. Yeah, I mean, it was it was an evolution, really. And this is where I mentioned before that it's not I'm sorry, my, my dog is barking. Hopefully the audio is OK. Um, it wasn't one of those things where I decided one day, oh, I'm going to be a war zone doctor. You just, you follow the opportunities that are presented to you. And that's what led me eventually. So I, when I graduated from medical school, I was very interested in, and all through medical school, in fact, this is one of the reasons why I had applied, I was very interested in the intersection between um, health and women's rights, human rights, um, issues around poverty and and um, and social justice and that kind of thing. And so when I ended up graduating from medical school, I applied to do a, uh, there was a scholarship that I received to go to the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And then while I was there, I had the opportunity to work with UNICEF in war-torn Somalia during the famine in the in the mid 90s. And I one of the reasons why I was recruited was because my thesis research was around women's health and violence and the intersection between the two, how women's experience of violence can determine their health outcomes and shape their health outcomes. And that was why I was recruited. Uh, it was a volunteer position. I was paid exactly a dollar so that I'd be contractually covered by the UN if they had to issue an evacuation order. And that that experience profoundly changed uh, my life and changed my understanding of war, the atrocities that are committed, 
the extent of people's suffering, and also the opportunities for different outcomes if we're willing to invest in them and invest in them through robust humanitarian action, um, but also by looking at some of the things that we do on our side of the world through our arms policies, our arms investments, through um, neglect, through climate change, through all these other things that actually contribute to this kind of uh, hardship being experienced in other parts of the world. And then after that, I had worked during my public health residency off and on for the United Nations in different environments and began to see a tremendous number of, of missed opportunities. The whole aid infrastructure is dependent upon this expertise that is imported, um, that is at, run by outsiders, often at the expense of and without consideration for the local communities that it's intended to serve. And it's very short term. It focuses on food, water, shelter, blankets, but it doesn't focus on the real systemic issues and challenges that have to be addressed in order to prevent war and violence in the first place. And so what do I mean by that? It's issues of kids being out of school for years and years and not having access to education. It's sexual and gender-based violence and uh, not having access to, to justice mechanisms. It's um, economic as well. I mean, a lot of the drivers of war are economic drivers of war. Uh, it's issues of food security. And so thinking through a different kind of humanitarian organization that works with local partners, that takes a long-term view of these challenges, that actually addresses them um, systematically and that and that works to invest in what exists as opposed to exporting um, that those kinds of human resources from other parts of the world. And it's much more effective in, on every level, both cost effective and, um, you know, materially effective. If you can work with local partners, that became the impetus behind War Child Canada. And then um, so I started uh, the organization in 99 and then Eric joined and then we built it up uh, together. So that's that was a very long answer. But, um, you know, I think it's like anything else when you bear witness to something truly horrible when you see the ways in which the responses are flawed and need to be improved, you can either try to change what is there, or you can create something that addresses those challenges. And for us, it was about creating something that would address those challenges. And we've grown uh, phenomenally in that period of time. No, and it has been a, it has been an outstanding trajectory and very, to your point, sustainable impact for these communities, uh, hands on making sure that uh, with your assistance, they it can be it can be managed long term versus the, the imported expertise. Really, really powerful. Um, I've seen some of this firsthand, Samantha, and I can deeply relate and appreciate. Uh, uh, so, one of the things I wanted to to ask you is that in some of the public speaking you've done, you've spoken about the importance of the rule of law and access to justice as part of the next frontier of international human assistance. Mm -hmm. I, you know, having been in law and at a school, Windsor Law was known for their access to justice push, and this was a really big thing that was pushed for. But in your opinion, wh why is that one of the most important uh, characteristics that is needed for, for, uh, for the push forward? Yeah, I mean, this is, a, I think, a new sphere of international humanitarian assistance, really. Um, like I said, when we think about international aid, we often think in very short term cycles about keeping people alive. But the reality is you the way that you one of the most critical ways 
that you can disrupt that cycle of, of poverty and violence and retribution and recruitment of young people and minors into armed groups is by having stronger, more robust uh, legal mechanisms. And sometimes those exist within the countries in which we're operating, and sometimes they don't exist, but you can certainly build them up and you can um, advocate through lawyers and through paralegals for uh, different kinds of judicial mechanisms, whether it's community reconciliation mechanisms, whether it's mediation uh, and that kind of thing. And so, so we are a registered law firm, for example, in Afghanistan, where we were working to defend girls and women who were accused of moral crimes. Obviously, that's gone through a bit of a different iteration since the Taliban took over, but um, we were doing some very diligent work around that for many years. We're also a registered law firm in Uganda, um, still where we had been training lawyers and paralegals. And again, you know, you've got communities who have experienced tremendous injustice and tremendous uh, abuse and atrocity. And the ways that women and children especially can be protected in that environment is to seek legal redress, to have their cases collected, to have them represented, um, and to have somebody who can advocate for them to pursue justice. And and most of that work that's being done is, is in a, it's, again, they're all local. 99.9% .9 of our staff everywhere in the world are local. Uh, we train them, we build their capacity. We had some mobile legal clinics as well that were out there talking to the community, strengthening the rule of law. Because without accountability, when you have this climate of impunity, the way that these disputes get resolved is, you know, somebody picks up a weapon and goes next door and tries to mete out their own justice, right? And, and then the cycle just continues. And so we know how important the rule of law is here in Canada when it comes to peace and security. And it's just as important in other environments. And where it doesn't exist, creating those mechanisms, fostering those mechanisms, even like I said, if it's through community mediation and reconciliation, has a has a really important impact. No, it's uh, Samantha. Extreme. That's extremely powerful. And I think the, it's it's an important takeaway, really, that to break the cycle of violence. Because even if you if there's temporary respite from from uh, violence in certain regions, if this is not instituted, that education is not there, gender-based violence, all these elements, they all contribute to it. So this is, it all ties together and, and demonstrates why it's so important to do it in a sustainable fashion, like like your approach. Well, and also just yeah. reminding people what, what the rule of law looks like and what the International Convention on the Rights of the Child looks like. And, you know, in, in some environments, especially some um, rural environments where there are low levels of education, if a young girl experiences sexual violence, the way that it is resolved at the community level is to force her to marry her rapist. And so engaging in that kind of education and advocacy, even in the absence of formal judicial mechanisms, becomes really important so that families realize uh, and understand that that is that is not the way that you protect women and girls. Um, in fact, it just opens it up to ongoing, ongoing abuse and ongoing violence. And and so as a as as a women's right rights advocate, this is something that I'm extremely passionate about, and something that we as an organization are passionate about. The reality is, though, that you know I don't think the aid sector does itself any any uh, favors. We tend to distill down very complex problems and try to essentially package them for fundraising purposes. Uh, we, we don't do this, but, but you know, 
because people like quick fixes, right? They like to think, oh, if I get a goat or a chicken or this and that, or I give a $300 microfinancing loan, that that's going to solve these problems. And it will no more solve the problems in particularly in complex humanitarian environments um, than they would solve them here. You, you're not going to go into communities that are facing structural issues and systemic issues around poverty and violence and abuse and despair um, and and generational trauma and go, here's a goat. <laughs> like, And so, so it's really part of what I see my job, and you asked about the public speaking to get back to this, it's, it's also one of education, right? It's about having conversations with people and and respecting, I think, their capacity and their intellect when it comes to grappling with these issues and, and distilling them down, not to one thing or one action or one click or one share or one goat or one chicken, but, but full paragraphs. We are capable of thinking in full paragraphs. And until we think in full paragraphs about international humanitarian aid, we're going to continue to make the same mistakes and reward the wrong things at the expense of the right ones. Yeah, and, and Samantha, I think the important part of the infrastructure that you have and the the uh, ecosystem you've created is that you can actually be sustainable. You could be there over the years and have that credibility, even with the local uh, with the local communities. One of the things that uh, I remember to this day, um, I think you and I had spoken about the project I do in South Africa. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember one of the teachers in the community saying, you know, we've had all kinds of NGOs. They come in, they do some project, and then we'd never see them again. And uh, there's nothing more dangerous than that because it creates kind of false hopes. And, and I know people do it with the best of intentions. This isn't, this isn't starting from a place of ill intention. It's just that, that lack of sustainable and, and holistic approach is just patchwork and, and to see the real results, it needs this bigger picture and and some that can take years before you could see real results because it's these are not changes. When, you're, when they are systemic, it can take a long time before you can see results. Well, that's absolutely true. And, and, and one of our biggest areas of operation is in education. And we do a lot of catch up learning for kids who have been, uh, especially kids who have missed out on years of education as a result of war or displacement. And so these are kids who've missed six, seven, eight years. And so through our compressed educational programming, they can do two years over one and get back into the appropriate grade system. But some of them are 17 and they're going back to grade one. So it takes a bit of time to achieve that. And that's not something that you can that you can accomplish with a one off uh donation that is, you know, that is something that's going to take multiple years of investment, but the rewards are that much more significant because you're really moving a child from being high risk with little opportunity, um, who is also very likely to be re-recruited and abused in and or engaged in really high risk labors into something that is um, much more meaningful and creates much more opportunity for them. So, it, school in particular is a is a very very important part of 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 keeping kids safe and and breaking the cycle throughout the world. I should have mentioned with that too. I mean, part of the challenge that we face is that, unfortunately, right now there's just increasing demand for what we do. We're facing the worst refugee and displacement crisis since World War II. There are about 117 million people who've been forced from their homes. And um, last year we. I mean, we had a significant increase in the number of our beneficiaries to over 1.2 million people. But Gary, I mean, we could 
easily with everything that's been going on, particularly in the Middle East and Africa recently, uh, I mean, we could easily quadruple that and, and still not be um, meeting the tremendous demand that there is for our services and programs right now. And it's getting harder. I mean, the, the war in Ukraine has, uh, has really galvanized or it certainly has, has mobilized the, the largest share of attention in the news and also uh, donations resources. Now with the war in Israel and Gaza, we're seeing the same thing. I mean, it is a very, very difficult time to run an international NGO and to get any attention for any uh, crises outside of those two right now. And I'm, I'm just back from Yemen and I can tell you it's on the brink of a horrific famine. And, um, and that global humanitarian appeal is 30% funded. So, you know, this is really living in a very complex, difficult period of human history. Well, and Samantha, if I could draw a parallel, it's a bit like politics. Uh, Yemen, the need is still significant and has been for a while. It, and uh, yet you don't hear too much about it in the news because new, new highlights have come up that are a bit more recent. Um, and the reason why I draw the parallel to politics, it's almost like when certain issues pop up, they get the attention all of a sudden some systemic issues that are critical don't get addressed because it's of, of the, sometimes what seems like flavor of the day. Um, what would you say to enterprise donors and, and individuals? How do they allocate their dollars? I think just in general, this is if it's always a, a good time to donate, but probably more than ever. And to your point, the, the largest displacement of people since World War II, that's significant. I, I don't think anyone can argue with those numbers. But how do they allocate the dollars? How do they determine the causes? What is the best bank for the buck? And how do they do that research? Because fewer if you, enterprises sometimes may have people that, that spend a bit of time researching this properly, mm -hmm. uh, but individuals certainly don't. What advice would you have for people around that? Uh, well, my advice is to look at it as a, as a partnership. Um, and especially if you have significant resources that you want to bring to bear to a particular challenge, the most important thing is to be invested over a longer period of time so that you can see very sustainable change. And then that allows organizations to plan. And I say this to people a lot, which is that you're better off giving a smaller amount of money on a regular basis, such as a monthly basis, than writing a check once and walking away and going, why doesn't it ever seem to get any better in places like Haiti? You know, um, it again, it, these are structural challenges that take time. There are no quick fixes. And if you can wrap your head around that um, and addressing some of these longer term deficits, then you will have a much greater impact. So that's the first thing. The second thing is just in terms of, of, of how do you allocate your resources? You know, most organizations are very good at having those kinds of conversations with donors. The, the best kind of funding is, is unrestricted, and I'll tell you why. It's unrestricted because we are so beholden to whatever is in the news cycle. And so if somebody's given us a, a massive check for Afghanistan, but that program is particularly well funded, and we desperately needed for our work that we're doing in, around education and food security in Yemen, then reallocating that becomes very, very problematic. Um, you know, for example, right now we have a very significant MasterCard gift for our programming in Uganda, working with refugees there, but we are surviving on a wing and a, uh, and a prayer, basically, um, with, with Yemen and a few other locations. So it's really about have a conversation with the organization. If you do want to earmark it, 
then why not start by saying to the organization, where do you desperately need this the most and why and how can I help and be a part of the organization? That's incredibly important. We've got some terrific donors, um, including out of Silicon Valley in the tech space who are very interested in not just helping and donating to the organization, but really helping us expand and grow and coming up with ideas and looking at impact and that kind of stuff. And so they have uh, been with me to look at our programming in, in Uganda and then to look at how we can replicate some of those successes in other locations. And then they're, they're funding that work. So it's not about getting on a plane and going overseas and taking the jobs away from local communities. It's about if you really want, you know, if you really want to immerse yourself, um, then be a part of an organization. And you can do that in all kinds of different ways by having conversations, uh, attending fundraising events, learning a lot more, and, and just sort of figuring out where you can be maximally beneficial. And I think that's so powerful, Samantha. At the end of the day, is once you identify an organization that, that you can relate to their cause, to really consult them versus saying, here's a bunch of money and uh, here's what I think is important without having that full information. And that information will, will, won't always be consistent either. There may be other pieces that come up in the meantime and only the people that are consistently in the front lines will have that line of sight. Well, that's it, right? And a lot of people have great intentions and they come at it thinking that some widget's going to solve it or that they... That, that, that they are only doing one thing and that they're, they're, that's what they're committed to. And, you know, I've had a lot of conversations with people who'll say things like, well, you know, we're, we're really looking for AI solutions to this particular problem. And I'm looking at them going, okay, but you know that there's no electricity <laughs> in the camps that we're working in, in South Sudan and Sudan and elsewhere. And they'll say, well, we can have solar panels. And I said, well, but you'd realize there's no one to maintain those solar panels and that they're probably just going to get looted and put families at risk, right? So it's, you know, they're, they're, we can't allow the assumptions of outsiders to drive the, uh, the solutions. And, um, and that's what leads to white elephants. And that's what leads to so many aid failures throughout the world. It is a collaborative process. And aid organizations are experts too. We have this sense that somehow if you work for an NGO, they were just a bunch of naive altruists that, that, you know, don't know how to run a business and this and the other thing. And that's, that's not true. There's no harder business you will ever find than one that doesn't turn a profit and where your only business model is continuing to appeal to people's good intentions year in and year out. It is soul destroying, Gary. It is soul destroying, but it's the only thing that, that really works in terms of the, the getting funding for the programs. I believe it. It is, it is hard. And to your point, it's, uh, you have to keep appealing to people even when it's hard. And, and sometimes even when they don't fully get like what you're trying to accomplish. And, uh, and, and sometimes uh, even though an enterprise may want to throw big money around an initiative, if the not-for-profits realize that this is actually not going to generate the results, that level of honesty is important to say, look, I appreciate it, and, but I must say no because it's not the right way to deploy it. And I think they may do better uh, than the, the disservice of trying to deploy something that won't have the results and will be a disappointment all around and potentially a waste of resources even on that not-for-profit side. So well, that's I can, right. uh, it's enlightening. Yeah, I mean, you, you see this all the time. You see aid organizations bending themselves into pretzels to try to meet donor demands. And um, it doesn't work. And you just end up with these 
inefficient, ineffective programs. I mean, I've, I've turned people down before because we get, we get very bizarre things. We get people calling up saying that they have a surplus of left footed shoes and could we take them and distribute them to amputees and you're just going, uh, but specifically right foot amputees. I don't understand what you're anyway. Um, it's people have great intentions, but sometimes the job requires a lot of education as well. And Samantha, I spent a fair bit of time on this aspect of it because I'm hoping some of the listeners will, will be listening to this and being like, I should donate to War Child Canada because Samantha's insights are truly deep and, and she definitely she definitely knows uh, where the need is and, and my money will be well spent in the right area. I hope uh, so. Or else they're going, oh my God, she never shuts up. I'll just put money on the table so that she stops talking. <laughs> but I, I am going to pivot a little bit and, and just around sort of advice for business leaders, because to your point, there's no harder business to run than yours in many ways. So the... the one of the challenges, of course, is you see some very desperate situations and uh, you see a crazy need where you still have to keep the morale of your team up uh, so that they can deal with the donors and, and keep people motivated despite some of the harshest conditions that you've seen. You've been in situations where you've been ambushed yourself multiple times, not just once, multiple times. Mm. So I'm sure there are some learnings that have come through uh, these years of doing this work. What did you share with business leaders that applies just the same way, whether not-for-profit or otherwise, around key learnings from, from these challenges over the years? I think there have been, there certainly have been many. Um, I think one of the biggest challenges for, and key learnings for me as a leader is that in fact, you're, you're rarely defined by your successes, but you're often defined by your failures. And it's how you respond to those failures, how you persevere in the face of them. Um, that really will ultimately determine what kind of leader you are. And there have certainly been times when I have thought to myself, well, we won't survive this one. Um, and that's true both literally and metaphorically in my case. I, I, I certainly am acutely aware of how lucky I am on a personal level to still be alive. As you mentioned, I've had a few more than, more than my share of, of near misses um, through the nature of the work. But when the pandemic struck, we thought to ourselves, oh, well, we're not going to survive. We're not going to survive this one. This is going to be really tough. Nobody's donating. Nobody's thinking about uh, how, what what's happening internationally. Even as the pandemic created, it exas it exacerbated so many of the inequalities, rampant inequalities that we were seeing throughout the world. Um, and then, of course, when there is the election of of Donald Trump and the massive cutbacks, because we do get money from the Canadian government, from the U.S. government, and others throughout the world for our aid programming, I thought, and he was promising to gut international aid, and I thought, well, you know, there goes all of our funding for our programming in Afghanistan. How will we survive this one? But in his case, he never actually was organized enough to get around to gutting aid, um, which was an interesting thing. And then it, certainly this past year with, with Ukraine and now this current crisis, trying to make sure people are paying attention to some of the areas in which we're operating can feel like a monumental task. But what I've learned through that is that you're even as a leader, you're not alone. Um, it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to let people know that you aren't sure. But what you must always do um, is find the strength within yourself to continue to push forward. And in the end, for me, it's that it's, I, I know why I get up and do what I do every single day. I've got more than 
800 staff throughout the world who are on the front lines of the most difficult, challenging humanitarian environments in the world who are risking their lives every single day. And the one thing that they ask more than anything else of me is that I haul my ass out of bed and that I don't feel sorry for myself and that I knock on as many doors as I need to knock on and have as many conversations as I need to have in order to make their work possible. That's it. And so in that context, it feels like a very small task. And I think that for leaders of any enterprise, that's what's being asked of you. It's that you uh, remain undaunted even when it's difficult, that you have the courage to lead when the odds feel stacked against you. Um, we are not measured as leaders by the moments when it was easy. We're measured as leaders by the moments in which it was really, really hard. And ultimately for me, um, connecting to the purpose of the work is, is, is fundamental, right? And, and that's true for you too. I mean, what you're doing with Alexa is extraordinary. I mean, you're, even the work you're doing with us is, is making our work easier and changing lives. And so connecting to that and not getting bogged down in the minutia all the time of the budgets and the quarterly reports and this, that, and the other thing, right? I can be guilty of that too, even in this line of work. But taking those moments to really think about what gives your work meaning and purpose is is so vital, not just to any leader, but to anybody within an organization. And um, and I always I live by the adage as well that it's it's organization before ego, and uh, and making sure as a leader when I'm looking at opportunities, when I'm looking at whatever comes our way. You know, am I the best person for that? Is there somebody else in the organization who's better at that than me? And should that person be the one who's 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 leading on that and taking charge of that and, and being present for that? Um, and that's been a big consideration of mine, even with respect to the our U.S. expansion as a Canadian, right? Going down into the U.S. market, I, we've got great ambassadors who are American and things down there. And so it's really about pushing them forward and making sure that they feel confident and equipped to be able to help us grow and uh and not necessarily about the little canadian with her with her roll roll on luggage you know um because there are only there's only i've discovered there's only so much criticism americans are willing to take from canadians about their foreign policy <laughs> that's true <laughs> even though it's a long list <laughs> Well, and, and I think, Samantha, if, if uh, that's great advice to any leader, and I think it applies the same regardless of what industry they're in, uh, for-profit, for not-for-profit, uh, and anything in between. I think this is so critical that organization before you go and we get measured uh, on, on, on the situations where times were tough versus just when things are running smoothly because they seldom are and they seldom are for too long and and it's the decisions we make during those challenging times that make us who we are and make our organizations resilient and stand the test of time it's a test of endurance all of it right and uh some days it's all you can do to just put one foot in front of the other and hope that it will result in a better day look i mean i think doing this work there isn't a single week that goes by where I don't have at least one moment where I feel utterly defeated and deflated. And there's a lot on the line for us. I mean, we are dealing with people's lives and um, 
And that's very, very hard. The weight of disappointment sometimes can be absolutely crushing because you know what that leads to. Um, but like I said, I, I, I recognize within that that it's very self-indulgent for me to say, oh, I don't have it in me when I've got people on the front line who are forced to deal with situations that are much more horrendous and horrific. Well, Samantha, I hope that anyone that listens to the podcast can appreciate why we support War Child because it is for for this exact work. And I know we often say in most lines of business that hey, at the end of the day, it'll be fine. We're not saving lives. In your case, you're actually sometimes saving lives. And this is why this is so important. So for, for any listeners, they, they know uh, that uh, donations are always welcome and sustainable donations, consistent <laughs> and not not earmarked for particular causes, a bit more broader uh, in, in scope and with in consistent conversation with the not-for-profit. Yes. Thanks, Gary. So uh, I'm pivoting to our last portion, Samantha, and this yep. is what we call a rapid fire questions. These are just fun first word that comes top of mind, yep. just as a, as a way to end with on a lighter note. Okay, perfect. Before you do that, though, can I just say that uh, working with you and with your software has changed my life on a personal level. It's definitely changed the life of the organization because we are dealing with multiple different languages and and, uh, and different documents. And so, and you know, I have reached out to you on many occasions going, I have this speech, I have to give it a PowerPoint in French and I did blah, blah. And then you've jumped in and I've uploaded it all and it's been just absolutely amazing and um, saves us hours and hours of time and allows us to reach brand new audiences and to communicate better. and. Uh, Every organization needs strong communication. So thank you to you for what you have done in building Alexa, and thank you for making us one of your beneficiaries. And Samantha, we appreciate uh, being included uh, as, uh, to have that opportunity because what better way to contribute back and um, what what better cause and more noble cause. Well, thank you. Okay, rapid uh, fire, so here we go. What is your favorite word? The F-bomb. <laughs> Uh, and I used it too liberally. <laughs> but, you know, in your line of work, people can understand. I'm allowed. I said that to my son when he was a teenager and he dropped the F-bomb. I was like, when you've been shot at, Reese, you could use the F-bomb. <laughs> and ambushed three times. That's right. And then he's like, uh, so is that why you swear so much, Mom? <laughs> I was like, yeah, it's a lot of bullets. <laughs> what word do you hate? Well, uh, I hate, well, it depends on whether you're talking about whether I'm saying it or whether somebody else is saying it. Um, I find myself when I, either, either I, I say, you know, a lot, it's a very Canadian thing, you know, you know, you know, and, um, it makes me crazy when I play back interviews and hear that I have, you know, peppered in there all over the place. Um, and then other, other words make me nuts. I, I hate it when like is used in a sentence too many times. It just, it's just uh, credibility destroying, I find. Now, what words do you have a hard time pronouncing, if any? Unfathomable. <laughs> 
anything that's able, you had no again, trouble at all. anything that's multiple syllables because I did French education, just the last part of it is always whether it's vulnerable, unfathomable. When I'm giving a speech and I see it's in there, I have a moment where I think, okay, abort mission, abort mission. <laughs> A word that I cannot fathom. <laughs> it's, it's because the inflections are, are different, right? So in, in French, you, in, in, anyway, so that's, that's always the problem. I just fall, if my tongue falls over itself. Uh, what is your favorite word in another language, if any? Je t'aime. Yeah. Hard to go wrong with that. Yeah. Uh, how many languages do you speak? I speak English and French. Um, I did 13 years of French education. So in theory, I am uh, bilingual. Um, and then I speak enough functional Arabic to not get lost and to find a bathroom. Uh, and I know Eric speaks uh, some Arabic as well. Yeah, and Spanish. Sudanese accent. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> the Sudanese accent. No, he's fluent in Arabic and Sudanese as well. I mean, and um, Spanish. And uh, one word to describe yourself by. My part, what was the last part? One word to, that you can describe yourself by. Relentless. <laughs> I, I will agree with that. <laughs> that is what That's... most people complain about. It is both an asset and a liability. <laughs> in your line of work, it's an asset and, and uh, it goes well in line with the advice you gave earlier. So it lines up. Yeah. Samantha, you are an extremely busy person, so I really appreciate the time you made to join us here today. Uh, it's a great opportunity for our listeners to hear from you live and truly understand sometimes what goes into some of the work that you do, because they seldom get this opportunity to hear from people such as yourself. Well, thank you, Gary. And like I said, the, the partnership is, is so very much appreciated, appreciated, and I can't wait to do more. And I hope that people... If they want to get in touch with us, they know where to find us on warchild.ca and we'll be happy to, to connect with them and talk to them.